Hi, and welcome to On The Spot with Dr. Michael Walker. We've been engaged in a exciting conversation concerning ancient African Christianity. We spent some time uh, in the very early session talking about the overall meaning of ancient African Christianity, where we set out to define it, to give the listening audience some introduction to the subject. And in our time together today, I want to spend some time walking us through the first 150 years of ancient African Christianity. Certainly when we have a better appreciation for ancient African Christianity, we have a better appreciation for African Christianity that is practiced today as well as African uh, Christian theology. With the scholars generally agreeing that Christianity began in 33 AD, there's good reason to examine how Christianity spread in its early years. The great commission that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples essentially boiled down to three points. Go among people in the world, make disciples of Jesus Christ, and baptize those disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Biblical and historical data prove the disciples of Christ understood his words to mean take the gospel of Jesus Christ into every area of the known world. One recent survey reports Christianity is the largest religion in the world with 2.3 billion followers worldwide. Allow that to sink in to your thought process that of all the known world religions and all the religions in the world, from a numerical perspective, Christianity is the largest religion in the world with 2.3 billion followers. Now, if nothing else, the reality of 2.3 billion followers of Christ Jesus around the world is evidence that Christians have taken the gospel and the Great Commission seriously. Now, as of 2018, there are more than 500 million Christians in Africa alone. This means one-fifth of all Christians worldwide are in Africa. Africa was and remains fertile soil for Christianity. Focusing on ancient African Christianity calls for an investigation into how the term Africa was understood in the first century among people in that part of the world. To do so, it's important to acknowledge pr prior to any form of colonization in Africa, African people possess ways of knowing, ways of meaning making, families, values, various religions, theological convictions, arts, uh, art, moral theology, community, governing, language, and more. Basically, we cannot overlook or undervalue the truth. Indigenous Africans possess their own heritage and culture long before any non-African persons discovered their land. 
Contrary to popular opinion, many folks want to believe that Africans had no culture, they had no heritage, they were some uncivilized people living in a land that they couldn't understand and manage the resources of, and it took the help and the leadership and the foresight of outsiders to come in. That is simply not true. To accept or continue with the absurd view that Africans were some sort of uncultured and uncivilized people is absolutely ridiculous. Now, among scholars, there are competing views on how to define ancient Africa geographically during this period. I want to walk you through some of this, some of the arguments, some of the positions, some of the sides, so that you might have them. For some ancient African Christianity scholars, geographical Africa is understood as the coastal portions of North Africa that were under Roman rule. So among some, and not all, there's no unanimous agreement on this, but among some of the ancient African Christianity scholars, they define Africa geogra geographically in that period as the coastal areas under Roman rule. And for many of those scholars, they exclude Egypt in that calculation. Okay, that's, that's one side of the argument. Okay, that basically Africa... Is, uh, is should be understood to mean the coastal portion of, portions of North Af Africa and those areas were under Roman rule and we exclude Egypt as if Egypt is somehow not on the continent of Africa. Now, although this area was under Roman rule, it is important to tell you that indigenous Africans resided in North Africa during this period. Africa in the eyes of the Romans did not include Egypt or any area south of the Sahara. So for some scholars like Benjokinen or and Clark, they define ancient Africa geographically as the entire continent and is understood as a whole continent, a very large uh, landmass with it, including every square mile of the African continent possessing its own indigenous people, and this includes Africa. So right out of the gate, just giving you a couple of different scholarly and historical opinions and positions, rather, you, you see there, there there are two positions. There are competing positions. One position uh, limits the geographical understanding of, of Africa to the places where Rome ruled, and that excludes Africa because the Romans excluded I mean, not, excuse me, not Africa, excludes Egypt, and that's because the Romans excluded Egypt. There's the other opinion that says, no, Africa I I at that period, as well as beyond that period, is always to be understood as a large land mass geographically situated as one continent, where all uh, of its continent is occupied and being lived upon by indigenous Africans. Boy, you can see right out of the gate why, why there are some different positions taken even among Christians as it pertains to how to approach Africa. Now, at the very genesis of Christianity, coastal North Africa was under the Roman rule. That, that is very important to, to disclose. When Christianity launches, Rome has colonized and has, has had uh, North Africa under colonization for some time. So the question becomes, why did Rome or why did the Romans colonize North Africa? You see, when 
when a nation or a political political government or or a political group is engaged in empire building, empire building comes with the unavoidable um, set of problems. And one of those problems is food supply. It is not possible to have a thriving empire if there's not enough food for the population. Historians uh, tell us that prior to um, the start of ancient African Christianity and throughout that period and beyond that the Roman population was growing and ultimately grew to nearly 1 million people. Josephus, a first century historian, in fact, a first century Jewish historian, to be clear, reported that two thirds of the wheat consumed in Rome came from Africa and the other one third came from Egypt. Now let's pause right there and, and listen to that. He said again, he says two thirds of the wheat for Rome of all the wheat that Rome is consuming comes from Africa and the remaining one third comes from Egypt. Now in very layman terms, what he's really saying is 100% of the wheat supply comes from the continent of Africa for the, for Rome. So it's very important that you, that you should see that Rome now, when looking at North Africa, and what it could do for the people in Rome, this North African territory becomes quite critical to the very existence of Rome. So now you, you start to get this picture that th the reason that North Africa was attractive to the Romans for colonization had a great deal to do with food supply. So when you're thinking about trying to solve for the problem of food and, and, and you're building your empire and you want a thriving empire, you're, you're constantly looking for ways to ensure that you, you have adequate food for your people. And Africa, according to what historians have discovered, Africa literally supplied the grain for Rome. It's important then for us to see at this juncture that separating Egypt from Africa is a European viewpoint, not an indigenous African understanding. Romans were the Europeans in the area. That's a European idea to take Egypt and carve it out of what is understood to be Africa. Furthermore, Africa was essentially, or I should say Africa was essential to the very survival, as I said a moment ago, to the people living in Rome. Without Africa, Rome essentially would have been doomed. So what was the condition then of North Africa prior to Roman rule? It's fair to look at that question in some sense because we've, we've, we've sort of surveyed that there was good reason for, for the Romans to come into North Africa and colonize it, particularly because they were trying to feed their people and literally uh, this area supplied 100% uh, of the wheat or the grain supply for Rome. So then again, we turn our attention now to what was the condition of North Africa prior to Roman rule? 
Allow me to provide you with an overview of North Africa. I'm going to pick up around 264 BC and, and walk up to, you know, sort of around the 33 AD mark. History uh, tells us that prior, or I should say historians really reveal to us that prior to Roman colonization, North Africa possessed uh, thriving cities. And one of the very important cities of North Africa was the city called Carthage. Now, there are more cities worthy of discussion. We're not going to be able to get to that in our time together. But I do want to bring up to your attention the city Carthage. The city of Carthage was an ancient economic and military superpower. L let me allow that to, to just sink in uh, to your hearing. The city of Carthage during ancient Africa during this period was an ancient economic and military superpower. By far, Carthage was the largest and most important city in the region. And it was the apple of Rome's desire. In a real sense, colonizing Carthage was a top priority for the Romans. And they were willing to send countless troops into battle, fund multiple wars, and fight until they secured the victory. Rome engaged in three, not one, not two, but three wars with Carthage. Now, these wars are known as the Punic Wars. These wars took place approximately between 264. Some historians might back that data to 261, but I'm going to take uh, the approach 264 BC to 146 BC. Carthage was an empire all unto itself. Rome was an empire. So what you have now is two empires engaged in wars over the course of 118 years. The first Punic War was between 264 and 241 BC. The second Punic War was between 218 to 201 BC. And the third Punic War was from 149 to 146 BC. It is more than reasonable to conclude the city of Carthage did not fall easy to the Romans. Both Carthage and Rome fought to the bitter end. In fact, historians make clear uh, that Rome barely, and I do stress this, barely beat Carthage over the course of those three Punic Wars. And the African general, whose name was Hannibal, Hannibal of Carthage marched his massive army, get this, across the Alps during the winter months and came very close to conquering Rome. Contrary to some popular beliefs, North Africans of Carthage mounted a strong resistance to Roman colonization. Although Rome barely conquered uh, Carthage, it's important to let you know that Carthage remained a key city and became one of the significant cities of early Christianity. 
On the other hand, it's also important to let you know that when Rome finally, barely, beat Carthage and subdued it, subdued that city, the first order of business was destroying the city, level the city to the ground, take all the people, place them in slavery, and essentially by taking Carthage, Roman, the Roman Empire was able to take many of the remaining uh, northern cities in North Africa. The fall of Africa, excuse me, Carthage, was key to colonizing North Africa for the Romans. Historians tell us that the Greeks established trade colonies in the Cyrenaica um, area as early as 6 BC. Greeks, again, Europeans. And the Greek influence in North Africa came through the Punic ports. So watch this now. Scholars better understand that African re Africans retained their pre-Roman heritage. Get this. After being colonized. In other, in other words, Africans were not Romanized. Let me give it to you another way. In other words, Africans were not Romanized. <laughs> they remained Africans under Roman rule. That says something to us as we're, as we're talking about this, because what it says to us is, I am who I am. Regardless of what's going on around me, I am who I am. It also tells us that the indigenous Africans knew who they were. They understood who they were ethnically. They understood who they were historically. They understood who they were culturally. So although they may have lost the war, losing the war and losing control of the land did not take away from them the very fact that they knew, believed, and still practiced and lived and had their beings with the understanding that they were Africans. Now, now some historians do report that, hey, uh, the Africans were conquered to sustain the, the trade for Roman economic improvement. But let's be honest. How can there be a trade if you conquered us? There really is no trade. You're taking the grain now uh, from the area uh, that was not naturally yours. And we have to be careful when we see the word trade used to understand how that word is being used and how it's being situated particularly at different periods in history because the word takes on different meanings and connotations throughout history. So while some historians will say, well, you know, Africans were conquered so that the uh, trade could be sustained for Roman economic improvement. The truth is there was no trade after the uh, city of Carthage was uh, conquered after Rome colonizes North Africa, there really is no trade. You're not trading um, with, with the Africans uh, mutually. You've come in now 
And what you've done is because you won these wars, you, you're controlling the resources on the land that was not originally yours. And if there's any trade you're doing, you're doing that trade with other nations as you see fit. But the African is now cut out of the partnership and the agreement and, and the benefit of the resources that was on his and her land. In fact, if I can just go further to you, um, the Romans really had little to no concern about removing the African languages, the African religions, and the African practices. Let me give it to you again. To be really plain with you, when the Romans conquered Carthage and other North African uh, cities and basically colonized you know, portions of North Africa, they had no interest in eliminating African languages, and there were many. They had no interest in eliminating African religions, and there were many. And they had no interest in eliminating African practices. As far as the Romans were concerned, all of that could remain intact. This means that by the time Christianity enters Africa, North Africa is a region occupied by indigenous Africans, Europeans, and some scholars report and some historians report potentially, and I stress potentially, a small group of di uh, diaspora Jews. N North Africa then had become a multi-ethnic, multicultural multi-religious region let, let, let me give it to you again let, let me give it to you again this was what north africa was uh, culturally by the time christianity arrives it was a multi-ethnic multicultural and multi-religious region when christianity becomes or enters into the land Christianity then enters Africa without the removal or elimination of indigenous African religions, Afri African beliefs, African customs, and African practices. Let that, let that, let that sway in. So then <laughs> the next question that comes to the surface for us is uh, where did Christianity come from that's that's just a fair question what direction in the known world did did his did christianity travel uh into africa N now grasping the arrival of christianity in africa comes with the need to understand how three large land masses were situated around the mediterranean sea to the east of the mediterranean sea was asia which during the period that we're talking about, the period that we're discussing, refers to the areas that have names you're familiar with. Palestine, Syria, Anatolia, and all the land to the east of those areas, right? Now, to the south of the Mediterranean Sea was the continent of Africa. This large land mass, Africa. Now, to the north of the Mediterranean Sea, 
was Europe, which during this period uh, is the territory north and south of the Straits of Byzantium, all the way from Thrace to Ireland, from Sicily to Scandinavia. In very, very, very layman terms, Europe was in the north, Asia was in the east, and Africa was in the south. At no point during the ancient period would anyone use the term Middle East to describe any portion of the land to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, the Middle East or the term Middle East was invented. This is why very serious scholars, very serious historians will, will say with no mincing of words that the Middle East was invented. The Middle East was invented to describe any portion of the land, excuse me, to describe uh, a designated portion of the land in Asia. So I should give you some history on sort of where did that term come from? Well, the term Middle, Middle East um, was invented, and I do stress that, invented during the late 19th century uh, by uh, the British, which makes it a European invention. Invention. Now, there's some back and forth among historians on this. Some state, well, actually, the term was coined by an American naval officer who was an admiral, uh, Admiral uh, Albert Thayer Mahan, and then it was popularized by the British. Either way, it's still a European concept. So it's invented through a European framework. At any rate, 18 centuries have passed before the territory where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam were birthed would be renamed to the Middle East. Let, let me give it to you again. It would be 18 centuries that would pass. Not one, not two. 18 centuries would go by before the area where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam were birthed would be renamed the Middle East and then go on consequently to have another name and a designation in a specific area around Jerusalem as the Holy Land. These are inventions. There's no unanimous agreement among scholars or historians on the date when Christianity entered Africa. Instead, there is a strong, and I do mean strong agreement, that Christianity began in Western Asia and then spread south into North Africa. Catch that, catch this direction. Then north into Europe. Let me give it to you again. Christianity begins in Western Asia. It then spreads into North Africa. So it goes south. And then from the South, North Africa, Christianity goes north. Contrary to popular opinion, historical data uh, strongly, strongly, strongly suggests and reveals that Christianity in terms of North and South, because there is a great discussion uh, in, in certain circles about the spread of Christianity, was it north to the south or south to the north? And what they're really talking about is did Christianity come into Africa from Europe or did 
Christianity enter Europe from Africa. The evidence, much of the evidence shows that Christianity spread from the south to the north, which means it came from Africa into Europe. Early forms of Christianity, I do stress this term forms because while I'm saying early forms, the truth of the matter is there are still multiple forms of Christianity that are practiced to this day in all parts of the world, including here in America. But early forms of Christianity arrived in Africa during the first millennium. Now, at that time, we're talking about arriving into a four billion square mile area. That includes Egypt, so the Sudan, Ethiopia, Libya, to uh, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and even potentially areas further south. Essentially, during the first millennium, Christianity spread, listen carefully, spread north of the Sahara. And during the second millennium, millennium witnessed exponential growth to the south on the continent of Africa. So it's spreading exponentially now on the continent of Africa during the second century. In a very, very real sense, the modern so-called great Christianization of Africa is essentially a return to its Christian roots. There's, there is much debate, and I stress this, there is much debate over the dating of the arrival of Christianity in Africa. Now, the Apostle Mark is credited by some scholars as the one who brought Christianity into Africa. And, and, and But the truth is, there is no indisputable proof that we've discovered thus far uh, to back this up. It is believed that the Church of Alexandria was founded by the Apostle Mark. One of the things that I need to point out about the Apostle Mark is this. The Apostle Mark was not one of the uh, Jesus's original disciples. You probably already know this, but just stressing it out for somebody and uh, laying this out rather for someone in this listening audience. Mark was not a an original uh, disciple of Christ. He was not one of the 12. He was also not one of the original 12 apostles. Um, the apart the excuse me, the evangelist Mark, who goes on to become known and become an apostle to Africa was actually a North African man. Not sure how many of you knew that. So, so this apostle Mark that we're talking about who gets the credit for bringing Christianity into Africa was a North African himself. And who's, this is the same apostle Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And this is the same apostle Mark who's credited as, as, as the one who founded the church at Alexandria. One scholar even argues that uh, the arrival of Christianity into Africa could be dated as early as the 40s to the 60s AD. That now is in direct conflict with the general larger accepted uh, dating of 180 AD. Meaning 180 AD is is accepted because there is proof of um, uh, Christian martyrs in Africa at that time. And so uh, many scholars would kind of start their date right there. Uh, but that needs more research. It needs more investigation. Now, the early Christians of Western Asia have been on the move um, since around perhaps 66 to 70 AD. Why were they on the move? 
because they were being persecuted by the Romans. Okay, so so they're already entering into their diaspora, and they're really starting to move now. Uh, they're, they're, they're moving around, but they're not moving to the Northeast, which would have moved into Europe. They're moving next door to their close neighbor, the, the Africans, and they're moving south and southwest into Africa, and they find themselves in North Africa. Okay? What am I really, what am I really saying to you? I'm telling you that Africa is central to the story of Christianity. Now, although Jesus did not conduct any of his ministry in Africa, we know from biblical data uh, that he was in Africa, in, in Africa because he was in Egypt as a child. And on, his, and on his way to the cross, we better understand now that Simon of Cyrene, who helped Jesus carry his cross, was an African. Oh, oh, sorry, I may have sped by that in case you didn't know that. Uh, Simon of Cyrene, uh, in, in your Bible, the gentleman who helped Jesus carry his cross to Calvary's hill, well, well, that was an African. Okay, now, to diminish, cut, remove, distort, do anything to the such that takes Africans out of the story of Christianity and takes Africa out of the story and history of Christianity is to do major damage to Christianity as a whole. Christianity in no way, I do stress this, in no way can divorce itself from Africa. An important question then during the ancient period and we're wrestling with some questions as we look through this, is when did Christian literature first appear in ancient Christianity? Now, I realize that as you are listening to me, that many of us were trained, if not indoctrinated, to refer to approved Christian literature for use in the church as the Bible. We will look at this in greater detail later on in our time together in, in different sessions, but for now, I want to give you uh, this challenge. Allow yourself, give yourself the freedom uh, to envision the ancient period within the first 150, or excuse me, let me go further, within the first 350 years of ancient Christianity and allow that area to speak for itself, that particular area, that particular era, and that particular period. And please understand this when I say this. During that period, there was no such thing as a Christian Bible there was Christian literature. In fact, your Bible is Christian literature. Now, this Christian lit that was circulating among the believers and the early forming churches was circulating um, in ways where people were able to grasp, read, and debate over what they were reading. With Christianity being uh, a new and young growing religion, I have to stress that by this time, Christianity is Christianity is a new religion, and if you if you allow yourself to um, um, think in terms of comparative religion, Christianity is still a young religion compared to uh, religions on the continent of Africa, and even religions over in areas of Asia. So, re Christianity in in and of itself is a young religion at this time. 
And as a young religion that's growing uh, in all in, in, in regions and in, in new territories, uh, all sorts of beliefs, teachings, and practices are arising. We're not going to cover all of them. Of them, um, you know, there's just not time in our study to do that. We're going to take a look at a few of them as we walk through the first millennium in uh, ancient African Christianity. Uh, so you can have a sense of why early ancient Christian literature rose to the forefront. It, it is important that we do gain some sense of understanding as to what brought about the need for Christian literature. Because at the time of the launch, 33 AD, there's no Christian literature. In fact, I love what one of, one of my Old Testament scholars, professors used to say, uh, he would say, uh, when you look at the writers of the New Testament, the closest thing they had to the Bible uh, would, would have been what you understand to be the Old Testament. And they wouldn't have even called it a Bible. They called it scriptures, writings, Christian literature, writings. We're talking about Christian literature now. There are some things that came about that put forth the need to write and produce Christian literature. We will, over the course of our walking through the first millennium of ancient African, ancient African Christianity, we're going to look at some of this stuff. We're going to look at some of it as we survey it. Now, here's something I want to give you. It's important for you to understand that oral tradition plays a foundational role in Christianity. In fact, oral tradition and oral education predates the interest and circulation of Christianity and Christian literature. Let me, see, let me give it to you again. Before there was Christian literature circulating, th th there was oral tradition and oral educating. Basically, I'm talking about storytelling. <laughs> the process and the practice of storytelling was vitally important to ancient people. It was vitally important to ancient Africans. It was vitally important to ancient West Asians. Their ways of knowing predominantly came from storytelling. To somehow reduce storytelling to some primitive or uncultured process is to say the only way of knowing is through reading written text, which is totally not true. To somehow reduce storytelling to some primitive, uh, antiquated, unintelligent way of, of, of teaching is to admit you really don't understand what teaching is at all. To remove the oral component from teaching is to literally uh, handicap the education process. All I'm really trying to tell you is that it was heavily used during this particular period that we're looking at. That was very normative for education to occur through oral, oral um, uh, tradition, which is also known as storytelling. Historians uh, tell us uh, that 
um, storytelling was a major method of sharing ways of knowing in ancient times. Intellect then, this is important, intellect was not first bound up in the ability to produce written text. Intellect was bound up, listen, in the hearts and the minds of people and transferred through storytelling. That predates even adopting sacred texts. Let me pause there. No text can become sacred apart from people coming together and agreeing to determine it is sacred. We'll get into that much later um, uh, in our study. Okay, we'll get into that much later. It was a house in the memories of people, this type of dwelling place where their memories were that were transferred through the mouth to the listening ear. Scholars make it very, very clear to us that it is a mistake to believe that ancient pre-colonial Africans did not possess intellect and ways of producing intellect and ways of knowing prior to colonization. It is just wrong to do it. And in fact, if we've been engaged in it and if we're still engaged in it, we ought to have nothing to do with any of that type of thing because it's just absolutely wrong and it's disrespectful and is quite frankly absurd. Contrary to, to, to popular opinions, ancient Africans were not dependent upon Europeans to have ways of knowing. They were not dependent upon Europeans to uh, 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 have memory making. They were not dependent upon Europeans for intellect. They, they didn't depend on them for those things. In fact, they were not even dependent upon Europeans for theology. And I would even extend that to the Western Asians who came into there with Christianity. Africans were not dependent upon them for theology or moral theology because within the many African religions, there is a common general thread of belief in a supreme being. Also, moral theology in Africa, which is known as Ma'at, was already in existence and predates not only Christianity by a few thousand years, it predates the more theology that we have in the Old Testament, Old Testament by at least 3,500 years. So again, we want to be careful. We say, oh, we brought all this to the Africans. No, they already had this. In fact, you might want to realize, start reading some of their stuff, and you're going to mess around and discover that they already had this stuff thousands of years in their development, and perhaps uh, you you might run into a conflict when trying to say that uh, coming with Christianity, Christianity, this brought this first to this continent when you discover that it did not. I'm going to tell you something as a master level and a doctoral student that quite shocked me. Uh, and it took a while. I had to do all my research and doing some research. I discovered, man, I discovered something that I didn't know. But what one of the things I discovered is uh, ancient Africans already had uh, developed a deep understanding in terms of conceptual understanding uh, of God and had already produced moral theological uh, writings. So I'm going to tell you this, even this idea that Africans were not writers of intellect is totally wrong. It's totally wrong. This is not true at all. It's not true at all. And we need to wake up to these things because sometimes we're walking in the air and don't know it. 
I tell you what, man, uh, it took a long time for me to learn uh, that uh, that it was African that helped Jesus carry his cross on his way to Calvary's Hill. I sure know I never preached it. I've been in the pulpit quite often. I've preached the Passion Week several times. I never preached it because I didn't know it. I don't think I've ever heard a, a preacher mention it that I know of and that I've listened to. I, no, I know one. I take that back. I know one. Uh, I hadn't heard him preach it though, but I've, I've heard a lot of sermons and I never heard, and I've heard the Passion uh, Week preached a lot. Mel Gibson, even in his, uh, even in his movie, the, the Passion, depicts Jesus as a European man, which is wrong. Jesus wasn't European, whatsoever. Wow. So when you start thinking about this stuff. Uh, and I'm going to expose some more things to share some more things with you. I'm certainly not trying to rattle you and somebody to get nervous. Oh, God, you're trying to take my Jesus from me. I'm not trying to take your Jesus from you. Jesus is good for you. It's good for me. It's good for our soul and all that. I'm not trying to take Jesus from you. What I am trying to tell you is that some of the stuff that we do come into contact with and have been in contact with in America have been straight indoctrination and it has invaded Christianity in America. I know I'm going to be in trouble for that, but I got to tell you the truth. We now know that African Christians actually educated European Christians. Uh, a great theologian, um, um, last name was Odin. I think he, he's, he's made transition now. He made that plain for us. A lot of research in the area of African Christianity. Very respectable uh, scholar in this in this particular area. Made it very clear for us. African Christians educated European Christians. Which also meant African Christians taught the best of the best Greco-Romans. They also uh, taught the best of the best when it came to the Cappadocians. And any of the people who were of uh, Syriac. They were educating them. Mm -hmm. We also know that a number of the indigenous Africans who were residents on the Roman rule in North Africa. We also know that uh, some of those, some of those folks were skilled in writing. Uh, they were skilled in, in dual languages and they had the ability uh, to write in the, uh, the colonizers language and were very skilled at doing it. Interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, throughout our, throughout our survey, and I'm just about wrapping this, this session up, throughout our survey of the first millennia of ancient Christianity, we, we, we're going to look at a few of the African intellects. We, we just don't have time. We don't have space to look at all of them. But I want to expose you to as many of them as I can in the time that I'm going to carve out talking with you. Um, also, I'm going to make clear for you and expose you to some writers of Christian intellect that were African. Okay. Now, remember I told you when I started that uh, it is general, generally, 
agreed upon that Christianity started around around 33 AD. And we've been looking at quite a bit of stuff. We walked through a lot uh, in, in this particular podcast. But let me conclude with this. Here's a reasonable question. Fair question, let's say it that way. If Christianity began in 33 AD, when did the first Christian literature that is accepted for teaching in the church appear? That, that, that's fairly fair, right? In other words, very layman terms, when did the, the first New Testament writing that's included in your Bible, well, when did that appear if, if Christianity began in 33 AD? When did that show up? <laughs> and which book or letter was it? That is so fair, isn't it? Now, I know when you pick your Bible up, and you pick up a Bible, and the first thing you find is the, are the Gospels. You already know this, but I'm just sort of rehashing this. Somebody who may be joining the, the uh, network, but you already know that the, the New Testament Bible is not in chronological order. But if you didn't know, now you know. Uh, here's the deal. So when you pick your Bible up, you start with, you know, hey, here's, you know, Matthew. Is that the first book? Nope. To give you a hint, Matthew was actually the fourth book that surfaced and it's the very first one the first one is the letter of james dated somewhere between 44 and 49 a.d so at the very earliest um the first um form of Christian literature that's accepted as approved for use in all the churches as we know it in our Bibles is the letter of James. It shows up 33 AD. It shows up 44 AD. And so we're talking about there's been about an 11 year period at a minimum before it shows up. At worst, we're talking about a 16 year period. Let that sit. <laughs> so th these, these writings are developing over a certain period. At the very earliest, they start showing up at the ones that you have in your Bible. First one being the letter of Mark. James shows up um, 44 to 49 AD. Uh, that is essentially 11 to 16 years after the start of Christianity. Okay. The very last, the very last writing, which is actually uh, the book of Revelation, which is Revelation in your Bible as the last book. That one shows up around A.D. 94, 96, A.D. 94, 96, A.D. Uh, 94, 96. Now you start doing the math on that and you say, wait a minute. Now, if that one shows up in 94, uh, then at, at the very minimum, at the very minimum, that's 61 years, guys, before you have a revelation. 61 years. Okay. 61 years. Wow. It's quite a bit of time. 
uh, has gone by. Uh, at worst, at worst, you're, you're talking about uh, 63 years. Okay? You're talking 63 years. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the ideas, the idea, now watch this. The Apostle Paul, I should say this with you, where in terms of Christian ideology, how Christian ideology was formed, the Apostle Paul obviously is credited with um, uh, anchoring the bulk of Christian, or at least, let me not say bulk, half of Christian ideology. Why? Because he basically wrote half the books uh, that are in the 27 uh, volume compendium, if you can call it that, right? So he, he writes 13 of the 27. So we can just call it half, right? He writes 13. There's some in scholarly circles. I mean, uh, there's some debate on how many of the 13 is actually his. And and uh, there is the generally accepted consensus that of the 13, he really only wrote seven. The other ones were not actually written by him. But uh, that's another time, another place discussion. But ask yourself this question, okay? If Paul writes half of the Christian, early Christian, accepted, authorized ideology, theology, uh, ecclesiology, Christology. He writes half of it. Well, when, when did his first writing show up and which one was it? And that, that's a good question. When did the... Uh, when did his writing show up and which one was first? Well, his, his first writing that showed up, showed up around A.D. 51, A.D. 51. Now, it shows up A.D. 51 and it is the letter 1 Thessalonians. Allow that to sort of sink in so paul now uh first letter that shows up ad 51 so when you when you take that now we're now about an 18 year period i mean yeah we're about 18 years from uh the start of christianity first thessalonians okay that's fair probably the 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 it would be fair to say well well, if, if he wrote the first letter, no, he didn't write the first letter. He wrote the, his first letter of the 13 of half of this Christian ideology, theology, Christology, and so forth and so on. He put that in place. He, he He's credited for that. No doubt about it. Let's turn our attention to the Gospels. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all that. We've got four Gospels. When was the first gospel uh, recorded and who wrote it? Uh, that's another another good question. I'm going to end with this. Well, the very first gospel <laughs> that was recorded uh, was recorded around 50 to 60 AD, somewhere between 50 and 60 AD, and it was recorded by Mark. Yep, that's the same Mark, the African Mark that I told you about earlier. It is also thought of, generally argued and debated that Mark's gospel serves as an outline 
um, for Matthew and Luke. Matthew's Gospels follows Mark, same general period. Uh, and then Luke's, now get this, Luke's Gospel doesn't show up to 60 to 61 AD. Uh, and then the Gospel of John, I knew you were thinking it. Well, what about the Gospel of John? The Gospel of John shows up somewhere around 80 to 90 AD. What am I saying? I'm saying it took some time to develop uh, Christian ideology, Christian theology, Christian um, ecclesiology, any kind of ology related to Christianity. It took time. Now, it's important as we think about African, ancient African Christianity, they would look at these things in a way that help us to better understand how ancient Africans received, practiced, made use of, and spread ancient African Christianity. Well, until I get a chance to talk with you again, I'll see you round like a donut.